Reading once again at verse 1 and read down through verse 12, although we'll look primarily at verses 9 through 12 this morning. Thank you guys for helping us to sing wonderful things to our Lord and about our Lord. We're grateful for how you guys lead us. So on page 1012, our reading this morning is, if you would just like to use a Bible from the church, there should be one in front of you. James chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. This is God's word for us today. And here's what God says. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to also bridle his whole body. If we put bits in the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also, though they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great is a forest set ablaze by a small fire, and the tongue is a fire a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. You may be seated. Father, there is no word like your word. Oh, to have your word. It is a gift. It is a treasure. And may we treasure your word for these moments together, Father, And may your word do its work in our midst. May it transform us. May it drive us to the Lord Jesus Christ. And may through your word, by your spirit, we ever more become like the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is our third week that we're talking about the tongue, our speech, our words. And um, uh, it's a part of a larger unit that will carry us all the way over to the middle part of chapter 4, actually. And we've looked at some things already that the Word has taught us in the first eight verses of chapter 3 concerning the tongue. This morning, I just want to 
build upon that and add to that and throw in some more aspects of it this morning. And what struck me from particularly verses 9, 10, 11, and 12 is that there is a certain duplicity that operates in our hearts and through our mouths. Duplicity is a fancy word. In fact, I, I feared all week I wouldn't even be able to pronounce it. I've been practicing in front of a mirror. What does that word mean? I, I, I take it to mean a, a, a doubleness. Uh, now, duplicitous can also mean deceitfulness. And in fact, in our Bible study this morning, Carl out of Acts 5 with Ananias and Sapphira, uh, in a sense, they were duplicitous. They were deceitful in their shenanigan. Um, and, and certainly we can mean that, but I just mean it in a, in a more broader sense of just there is a two-foldedness, there is a doubleness uh, in our mouths, and yet also in our hearts. And those are the two things I primarily want to touch on this morning, the symptoms of a duplicitous tongue and the source of a duplicitous tongue. And then probably those two points, probably only half of our time together will be addressing those two points. And the, the rest of our time will probably deal with, well, I could have even thrown a third point in there, the solution to a dis, the duplicitous tongue. We'll look at some of the things that James has already said earlier in his book that uh, addresses how you and I should begin to tear into that duplicitous tongue and heart and experience the transformation that comes by the Spirit of God through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, look at just verse 9. With it, with it. Well, what's it? Well, in the context here, it is the tongue. It, it is uh, our speech, our words. With our speech, with our words, with our tongues, we bless the Lord and Father. And with it, the same it, we curse people who are made in the likeness or with the likeness of God. Have you noticed that about yourself? Have you noticed the, the inherent duplicity uh, of our tongues? Our tongue is a chaotic study in contradictions. We can gather and we can sing praises to God. We can praise God. We can sing praises to God, proclaiming his beauty, proclaiming his greatness, pro proclaiming his, his majesty. And we can turn right around. And in the next breath, or maybe even if, we're, if we breathe hard enough, with, with the same breath, we curse and vilify others, pronouncing their worthlessness. And who are these others? James says, and these others are the ones that are made in the likeness of the God that we praise. I 
Would I suggest to you that by his little phrase there, when we, we curse people who are made with the likeness or the image of God, he's, he's really calling us to understand that, that the way we talk to people, the way that we leverage our words, the, the way that we even size people up and, and therefore justify the words that come out of our, our mouths must coincide with the reality that the people whom we are about to unleash our verbiage on are, are, are made with an inherent dignity because they are made by the God whom we praise and bless. Most all of us, as we watched the video from Friday, were once again horrified to see a gentleman beat to death. I don't know much, I don't get out much, but I'm thinking that's not really how you regard human dignity of other people. I'm just saying. <laughs> it's a common tragedy that we don't regard people with dignity. Now, many of us are not given the opportunity to reflect a lack of dignity in regard to other people by having the opportunity to beat them to death. But, but here in this context, what James, I think, would be saying to us is that while we don't have the uh, opportunity to, to do that physically, what we do share in some resemblance of commonality is that we can weaponize our tongues and we can talk to people as though they have no dignity. And James is saying that is duplicitous. That is a doubleness. That is a two-foldedness. That on the one hand, you, you would go all gaga about who God is. And on the other hand, you would turn to someone who God himself has personally made. And you would unleash a verbiage, a barrage of, of speech that would undercut their dignity. John would, would, would point out that sort of contradiction in another way. He would say, you, you, can't, you, you can't say you love God and hate your brother. You just can't say that. Well, I mean, you could say it, but, but you're totally confused. You totally don't get it. You don't get what it means to love God if you simultaneously turn right around and say you hate your brother. Well, you, you, you can't. You, you, you've got to grapple with the problem of using our tongues uh, to bless God and then using our tongues to cut down and curse people made in the image of God. That is, that is not how we are called to use our tongues. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says that all who follow Christ are ambassadors of Christ. That's an interesting word. I don't know much about ambassadors either, but, but we still have those kind of critters roaming the earth today. Our, 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 our government, for instance, will send an ambassador to another country, and the agenda for that ambassador to that other country is not his own agenda. That agenda for the ambassador of our country is to represent our country, to speak on behalf of our country, to carry out the agenda of our country. 
And if he doesn't carry out the agenda of our country, the country he was sent to represent, uh, then he's called back home. He's not his own man calling his own shots, doing his own thing. Well, you and I are ambassadors for Christ if we belong to Jesus. And a part of what that means is that we are to represent our king. And even our speech, even our words, our tongues are to represent our king. We have no right. We have no right. We have no right to use our tongue to advance our own agenda. We have a calling, a responsibility to use our tongues to advance the agenda of our king, Jesus. So I guess it would be a helpful starting point if before we teed off on somebody, we said, Lord, is this the time that you want me to accost my brother verbally? I mean, that'd be a start in the right direction. At least you'd be acknowledged. It's like, I probably need to get permission before I accost somebody verbally. Now, If we frame it that way, it kind of ruins it because I think we probably already know the answer to that. Um, at least we ought to. I mean, if, if, if God was like uh, Jed Clampett, the answer would be, um, Jethro, quit helping me. He'll come to you later with meaning of that. In other words, but God has already God God has already given us an answer earlier in chapter one. He said that we should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not advance the righteousness of God. Our angry words, our slashing, cutting words, a whole host of kinds of words never never represent uh, the ambassadorial function that you and I have as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we should already come into this thing, not even need to pray about it, in other words, uh, that uh, slander is off the table, vulgarity is off the table, lying is off the table, gossip is off the table, verbal barrages of hostility are off the table. But I mean, those are even negative. What's on the table is, is words and tongue, speech uh, that promotes helpfulness and truthfulness and encouragement. James says in verse 10 of this third chapter, my brothers, these things ought not to be. What things? where we have a duplicitous tongue, where we can be two-folded in using our tongues to praise our Lord and using our tongues to cut and curse those who are made in the image of our Lord. But what James does next, beginning in verse 11... He goes all metaphorical on us. And by so doing, I think what he's doing is he's, without explicitly s s uh, telling us what he's doing, he's, he's shifting from 
the symptoms of the duplicitous tongue where we are twofolded uh, and, and really uh, addressing something of the source of a duplicitous tongue. Now, he's inching to get where he wants to go. And when he opens up in chapter 4, the, so Lord willing, our next time together, we will more fully get into the need to address our hearts and the wisdom of our hearts and how that has um, uh, influence and control over our tongues. And so, but, but he's doing it kind of by sh- showing us some word pictures here that, that by saying, here's where that duplicitous tongue comes from. It comes from a duplicitous source. It comes from a duplicitous heart. Poses the question then, uh, so... Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, uh, both fresh and salt water? And before he really answers his question, he says, and can a fig tree, my brothers, uh, bear olives? Or or can a grapevine produce figs? And then he answers the first question, neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. I'm listening uh, to an audio book right now uh, that's a biography on uh, Johnny Cash. And um, it's a great biography. Um, I, I, I'm, I've always been intrigued by Johnny Cash. Him and I have at least one thing in common. We both have vocal abilities that only a mother could love. But here's what, he, here's what his daughter wrote down that he said. The, the, the daughter didn't write the biography, but she was interviewed in the biography. Uh, he says this, sometimes I am two people. Johnny is the nice one. Cash causes all the trouble. And they fight each other. probably not a precise way of putting it. Uh, he's only one person, not two persons. Uh, but but do, you, do you hear his attempt to try to explain what's up inside of him? It's like there's two critters that have crawled inside of him. And, and one of them is a eh, pretty nice guy. The other one is a train wreck. No way. Uh, You're not inhabited by two people. But James is on to something to say. You know, but the source of your duplicitous tongue is a duplicitous heart. There's not two people inside of you, but there's two things vying for influence and control and operation. And, 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 and it, it, is, it is a struggle in the heart. Our Lord Jesus himself would say in John chapter, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 12, verse 34, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. First, the verse right before that, an uh, imagery likened to what James is saying here, uh, uh, for a tree is known by its fruit. If them's, if them's figs growing on that tree, it's not an olive tree. If, if, if them's grapes growing on that vine, it's not a fig vine. 
And, and, and yet sometimes you and I uh, can, uh, can really demonstrate the, the utter confusion that's percolating in our hearts is because sometimes uh, our, our mouths reveal a heart posture that wants nothing to do with the Lord. And sometimes by the grace of God, our, heart, our tongues reveal a heart posture that wants to honor the Lord. Sometimes we praise God with our mouths and sometimes we curse people made in the image of God with the very same mouth we've just praised the Lord. Proverbs 4, which Proverbs has a whole bunch of stuff to say about the tongue, uh, but the underbelly of the tongue is the heart. And so he says in Proverbs 4.23, keep your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. <laughs> from it flow the springs of words. He's already talked about here in chapter 3 of James uh, about how our, our tongue is a powerful critter. It it. it, it controls and affects a lot. And yet what he keeps moving us toward to grasp is that actually this tongue that controls and affects a lot is actually not in control of a lot. It is the heart of man that is in control of a lot. We want a different flow of water, of words to come out of our mouths, then we have to address the source of those words. And the source of those words, where words come from, is my heart and your heart. They don't randomly float around the universe and then, and then when you're not looking, hijack your heart. No, you and I consistently speak in a way that is consistent with the posture of our hearts. So last week, last week one of the things I said is, and you and I have to own that. You and I have to own our words. We... We, we can't explain away our words. In other words, we can't say, well, you know what? I would use nicer words towards you if you would start using nicer words toward me. It'd be like a, like a stalemate, wouldn't it? Because like, who's going to move first? Because once you start using better words for me, I'd be more inclined to use better words towards you. But if you don't start using better words for me, I am fully vindicated to keep cutting you down with my words. Duplicitous. The control feature of our tongues, the control feature of our hearts is not the words that others fire at us. What is to be the control feature of our tongues and our hearts is a greater synchronization between the words we speak in blessing God and those words then and that heart posture then infiltrating the words that we would direct toward each other. So if you never change your words whatsoever, I still have to own my words to you. I still have to own it. The other thing I have to own, this is building on last week, is I have to own that I need 
big help to get there. In other words, my heart is my heart, but boy, my heart needs massive doses of help. I have to own that I need help. I have to own that I can't fix my tongue, can't fix my heart. I really can't fix anything about me. But the other thing we have to own, we have to own that we're the source of the problem. It didn't come outside of us. It comes within us. But, and then, but, but the second thing we need is we need to own that we need help, and we need help outside of us. We can't, we're not self-fixated, self-fixers. Yeah, that's probably a better word. But we have to own that actually help has been provided. In James chapter 1, something that we looked at uh, months ago in verse uh, 21 of James chapter 1, he says, Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, which is probably larger than words, but certainly includes words. Put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. In other words, there is, there is infinite help available to you and I to address our hearts and our tongues. You can't fix your heart. I can't fix my heart. You can't fix your tongue. I can't fix my tongue. He says earlier, but no human can tame the tongue. That doesn't mean that there's not help available. God implants his word into the hearts and souls of his people. So connect the dots here. When we say we're Christian, when we use our mouths to say that, it, 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 it ought to mean a couple of things. First of all, it, to say, when, when we say that we're Christian, it ought, it, we, we are saying that we trust in Jesus. But when we say we're Christian, we should also be realizing that God has implanted his word in our hearts. A combination of the scriptures, a combination of Jesus, who is the focus of the scriptures, has gloriously been planted and placed inside of us. So that in Colossians 3, the apostle Paul would say, let the word of Christ dwell richly in us. And then what does he say next? Teaching and admonishing one another with, uh, with all wisdom. So in other words, the, 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 the immediate example of allowing and, uh, and, and letting the word of Christ dwell in our hearts is it starts to change our tongues. We don't curse, we bless. We build up, we encourage how do we get there? We get there because we have let the word of Christ dwell richly in our hearts. Or even, even in the James 1 passage, we are, to re- we are directed to receive the word that's planted in us. Now that's an interesting description because what he's saying on the one hand is you already, if you're a believer, you already have the word implanted in you. On the other hand, he says, so now receive that. I already got it, don't I? How am I supposed to receive something I already got? He's trying to 
get us to understand the, the tension of that sort of description by helping us to understand that you and I, we are not programmed robots. You and I are human beings. And when the word of Christ is implanted in our souls, we are to be people who actively acknowledge that and actively respond to that and actively cultivate the impact of that in our lives. For he says, when we, when we actively uh, receive and implement and cultivate the word that's already planted in our souls, it, 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 in, in us, it, it, it's able to save our souls. And it's an interesting description. And it's a reminder when we looked at that passage a couple of months ago that the word salvation is really a big word. It, it, it really encapsulates a lot of things. When we think of salvation, we think of being saved, we think of the pardon that we've received from the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and that is a part of salvation. But it would be a false gospel because it would be an incomplete gospel to suggest that the only work of salvation that we receive is the work of pardon of our sins. No, when, when we receive salvation, we receive a full and final and complete pardon. We absolutely do, and, and we can rejoice in that every single day of our lives. But when we receive salvation, we receive not simply pardon, but we receive the power to begin to tackle the sins that still linger and fester in our hearts and lives so that the word that is implanted in us is a word that begins to energize us, give us new desires and new abilities to, to uproot old patterns and old strategies and old vocabularies and then replace those old strategies and patterns of speech and vocabularies with new vocabularies and new new patterns and new strategies. It's a word planted in us to not merely pardon us, but to empower us to strip off the old sinful vices of desires and impulses and passions and dispositions. Therein lies the, du the duplicity. We've been made new creatures in Christ Jesus, and yet, oh, there's a bunch of old gunk still lingering around. It's, it's no longer our master, but boy, it sure likes to make us think it is. And it sure likes to influence us, particularly in how we would use our words to curse and to cut. And yet in that, in that struggle, we have a word of promise. The word of promise is that the word planted in us is able to save us. It's able to save us from the influence of the remaining vestiges of our potty mouths. Oh, when Jesus found you, you had a potty mouth. I mean, 
how else is he going to find people? He'd be looking all over the universe for somebody without a potty mouth. And we can talk about the love of Jesus. We can, earnestly. We could talk about the love of Jesus that while we were still potty mouths, he laid down his life for us. But I want you to understand, I want you to have a larger view of the love of Jesus. It's not just a a love that accepts you where it finds you. It's a love that begins to empower you to change. To rise above where you were found. He found you when you didn't have the speech worthy to be found. And he loved you. But that love continues and grows and develops and matures and expands. And it's a kind of love now that takes us where we are found and it begins to change us. And yet, here's the rub. When you and I receive that dimension of salvation that that is pardon, we really contribute nothing to that. But when you and I grow and experience that dimension of salvation that pertains to the new power to live differently, to talk differently, to use our words with a different agenda, and to, and to use even different words, that is rooted in the grace of Christ, but it is a grace of Christ that requires nonetheless effort on your part and my part. In other words, how this empowering aspect of salvation works is, is it, it, it undergirds us to have a fortitude, a resolution. To reach into our souls and to throw out what doesn't belong in our hearts. To learn how to talk all over again. And not just in the verbiage, but even in the very agenda and the strategies and the patterns. We're less interested in manipulating people, for one thing. I mean, we can use nice words and still be maniacal and nefarious and why we would even use those nice words. All of a sudden, it's like, I don't even want to do that no more. I shouldn't even do that no more. That, that's, that's not honoring to my king. And so we would apply great effort to clean up our mouths. And we would apply that great effort to clean up our mouths because we're convinced that the salvation that we have received has given us every ounce of power and ability and life that we need to begin that work of cleanup. I mean, kind of like what, to apply what Paul's words are in Philippians 3. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That, that sounds like fortitude and effort to me. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. That sounds like the grounds and the source of it to me. That's how we advance with our the tongue cleanup operation as well. We realize that apart from an infusion of divine grace, I will be unable to tame the tongue. I will be unable to clean up the heart. But Lord, 
what I own is I now possess the Lord Jesus Christ. He now possesses me. He's now given me everything I need pertaining to life and godliness. And, and the prospects on the one hand of cleaning up my heart and my tongue are a daunting process. But you give grace. And the confidence that that grace that you gives, give gives me new desires to do that work and new abilities and energies to do that work. So, something I found interesting. In other, in other words, you and I constantly need the word. We need, we need God's means to help us to grow in how we overcome our duplicitous tongues and duplicitous hearts. Something that the biographer said, really he even said it in passing, almost so much, like I don't even think he really understood the full implications of what he just said, but, but I'm a preacher, I picked up all over it. So, but talking about cash, and it talked about uh, um, uh, that you could trace from the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, you could trace the, the pendulum swing of his duplicitous life. And boy, it was some big swings. But you could trace uh, his highs and his lows, his spiritual ebb and flowing to his relationship of actively participating in a church. In other words, when he was actively participating in a church, the means of grace that God gives through his church is the means by which any of us grow and mature and develop. When we think that we're big enough, spiritual enough, smart enough, wise enough, whatever enough, and we don't think we need that church stuff no more, then there's narrow one of us who will not bottom out spiritually. We may not go to the extremes of his bottoming out. He was extraordinary in both ends of the spectrum. It may be different in degree for you and I, but it's, it's still the same. If we are to eradicate the remaining vestiges that give rise to a duplicitous heart, that, that are evidenced by a duplicitous tongue, then you and I need the word of God actively in our lives, constantly, continually. You and I need the resources that the people of God provide to us. You and I need to avail ourselves of all the means of grace that God has given and able to, uh, for us to experience the salvation of our lives at this daily moment as we overcome the remaining vestiges of sinfulness in our hearts. If we remove ourselves from church, if we remove ourselves from the means of grace that God gives to us through our church, then Nero, one of us, is able to stand up. Now, it is Jesus and not church that is the ultimate foundation of our lives. But the one who is the cornerstone and foundation of our lives is the very one who thunk up this ideal of you ought to go to church. Because I've got good reason for you. I've got much grace to give to you through church. The one who laid down his life, the one who in the face of hostile barrage, barrage of verbiage against him did not open his mouth to retaliate. In fact, his words were, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And it was that perfect Savior 
that secured your forgiveness and my forgiveness, but it's now that perfect Savior who now indwells us by his Spirit so that his impulses, his desires, his abilities become ever increasingly, incrementally shaping our hearts and therefore controlling our tongues. Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for the work that he has done and that he alone can do to not merely pardon us, but to empower us to live a different kind of life. Oh, Father, thank you. Thank you that your love is a love that never leaves us nor forsakes us, but thank you that your love is a love that the work that you begin in us, you will bring it to completion. So, Father, may we leave out of here. May we respond to you even now by simply relying upon you and what your Son has done for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.